Welcome to the Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford, founder of Startup Creative, your go-to source for straight-up business advice. Hi, guys, and welcome back to the Startup Creative Podcast. I'm your host, Kayleen Langford, and on today's episode, I chat to two mates, Declan and Jono who founded a brand out of their love for fashion and screen printing and the surf skate culture that they were living in and amongst in Byron Bay. So these guys have a pretty amazing story. They were sitting around with mates and came up with this idea for a brand and their name and then threw everything they had, which at the time wasn't much, and grew it into what it is today. It's an incredible story. They're doing amazing things in the in the world of sustainable fashion and it's so inspiring to hear how deeply passionate they are and how that passion runs through every aspect of their business. So starting out, screen printing shirts for bands and building it into a bit of a cult brand in the surf fashion space and concept stores and more recently have just purchased a hundred acres to grow their own hemp to ensure that their fashion line is sustainable through and through. So an amazing story of taking big risks and showing up every day and doing what it needs what needs to be done and kind of hustling in order to build the business and the brand. I love this story. The guys were so real, so down to earth, and everything about this story is exactly why I started Startup Creative, to tell stories like this of people with passions and a drive and a willingness to do whatever it takes to make their dream a reality. A huge congrats to the guys and everything that they're doing in the sustainable fashion space. We're actually going to do a giveaway with some of their clothing on our Instagram, so be sure to head over there and check out how you can get your hands on some of the label. And yeah, enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Declan and Jono. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks Our for having pleasure. Me. I was saying to, I think, um, someone from your team, I was like, I, I've been in a fans uh, fan from a, an early age back when I was a little skate rat in my in my early <laughs> preteens actually it was such a um yeah it's, it's such an iconic brand and it's been around for a while now so I'm I'm really excited to hear the backstory of where you guys started and how it got to where it is today because you're absolutely killing it yeah cool thanks where um where were you living in like when you were sort of up in Queensland started. yeah oh yeah what yeah what part Sunshine Coast Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, we had yeah. like a pretty big following up there from an early sort of start, I guess. Yeah, and I love that you've got um, – and I, to be honest, I didn't know, which is why I was so intrigued to have you guys on the on the podcast is, you know, it's it definitely is up there competing in the space of, you know, reputable street skate, you know, surf brand, um, but also has a really conscious, sustainable side of, of the brand, which we'll get into. But – Maybe, um, Declan, we can hand over to you and and intro us into, yeah, what is the brand and where did it come from? How did you guys get started? Um, so I guess we, yeah, we were sort of surfers growing up in Byron. Um, yeah, we were pretty into brands. A lot of our mates were sponsored by brands. Um, Jono rode for SMP back in the day. Um, so, yeah, we 
I guess we had this like kind of eye for sort of surf and skate brands and which then went on into more fashion. Um, but yeah, I guess that's where the passion started for me. Um, and we lived really close to each other. So I, I used to pretty much hang off Jono because he was a couple of years older than me and he had his license and I could go surfing with him and we sort of always discussed brands and things like that. And I went into screen printing and he went into sort of graphic arts and multimedia. You know, it was kind of broad sort of skill set, I guess, Jono had at that point. Um, and that's, yeah, I guess coming out of Byron, there was a bit of that brand culture stuff. And, and then as we got a little bit older and, and both sort of done our own thing for a little while, I screen printed for four or five years and Jono was doing various different design things. Um, we decided to give it a crack and that's kind of, I guess, how it came about. Yeah. Awesome. So how old were you guys when it started? Um, I was 22, I think, and Jono was 24. Is that right, Jono? Or 23 and 25, 21 and 23? I guess when when we're doing little stylized was around, you probably, what was that, a couple of years before that. So then, yeah, 24 roughly for me, starting a fans and, yeah, 22 for you. So so stylized was um, a screen printing business. It was stylized screen prints. And um, we used to do, at the time, there was like a a big sort of Byron Bay hardcore scene, which... um, you know, sort of came out of this surf punk kind of scene and formatted into, formed into that scene. Uh, and we were doing most of, most like sort of Australian hardcore bands merch. Um, and so, yeah, that was that business that we were run, running. And once Offends kind of took off for us, probably year one or year two, then we let that business go. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just to and, touch um, on that, I guess. Yeah, cool. And so you obviously both had an interest in like the fashion space anyway with brands and things. Um, do you remember the first conversation you had where you were like, hey, we should do our own thing? Uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I mean, we had a fair few conversations for sure. We actually went to Bali on a surf trip together um, and I think I was sort of pushing Jono a little bit more he was kind of like down for the cause, but he was going to England um, after this like two-month surf trip we were on and mm-hmm. he was like going to go over there and try and be a pro surfer, I think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, um, and, yeah, it was when he got back, I sort of like he got back and I was like, all right, let's do this, and he was all amped and committed. And, and then I think we were actually out at Ewingsdale and we started running through names and, I think we might have been smoking a joint or something like that out there <laughs> at the time. Can't really remember. Where all good but, creative ideas come from. Yeah, yeah, just kind of, and yeah, that was pretty comical thinking of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I go for it, Johnny. <laughs> nice. So I think, like, yeah, for me, yeah, remembering, I guess, coming up with names and logos and stuff like that, <clears throat> there was, um, we called it kind of dending. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So we have heaps of mates which kind of like, you know, they have like a garage or like a cool little room where they'll sit around and probably smoke heaps of weed. Um, so, you know, we used to sit around, smoke a bit of weed and talk about creative different ideas and names. And um, Deco actually came up with the name um, and it was a bit of a play off Athens. And I guess 
both of us, we just can't spell, so we just spelt it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's just a bit of a bit of a play on, um, yeah, the word Athens, and and we at the time a lot of the brands that we were kind of following and stuff kind of seemed to have more of like six letters and being kind of short and sharp. And um, we're also kind of thinking more towards the future a little bit um, for like dot coms and um, trademarks and, and various different um, ways to secure IP because say you come up with a name that is out of the dictionary, more than likely to get the dot com or to get the trademark would be, you know, really hard. Um, so a lot of the inspiration came from just the look and feel of the letters, the, the sound of the name, and um, just, I guess, how it felt. Do you reckon, Deco? Yeah, well, I mean, you were a little bit more onto, me, onto it than me when it came to um, domain names. And so I remember we were playing around with a few names and, and a lot of it was taken and then we came up with a fence and it wasn't taken and then, so we're like, oh, how good's that? And then I guess it wasn't until sort of, you know, until we first started paying for our first trademark registrations in Australia. And then we, you know, registering trademarks globally is really expensive. You've got to do it. There's no one trademark for all countries. Every single country has got to be done on its own. Um, there is a few countries that bundle it together. Um, like in Europe, you can sort of register a few countries at once, et cetera. But, yeah, we, we sort of like once we got into that, we were like, whoa, how good was that? That was kind of lucky we made that name mm. up and it wasn't something. Yeah. Um, it's kind so of yeah, when, you it, when you're bouncing the ideas back and forth and you finally get one that you can take, you're like, let's just go. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but it, did, it did all come from that sort of um, IP domain name registration. I guess. Yeah. And, and also, so, yeah. Yeah. Go for it, Dan. Yeah. Also, the fact that I guess, um, you know, it was, a, it was a word that we really liked. But um, I mean, it's always hard to come up with a name for a, a clothing brand or, or anything, you know, because everything nowadays and when we started 15 or so years ago, there would have been a lot more room to move. So if we had gone more of a conventional name, I, it would just be such a nightmare now if we'd kind of missed missed a country. Like if you can't, if you don't register the trademark, say in China, and someone else has it registered, potentially you cannot ship or manufacture goods in that country. Yeah, right. Or, or, or any country that is like, yeah, yeah it doesn't matter. It's yeah. I, it's really interesting because I think it's definitely, and this is what I love about these stories, is that it's. Um, you don't realize this stuff till you're in the game, right? It's like everyone sees you to sit in the garage and be like, let's have a, a label. And then you start to realize what it really takes. And I think especially the fashion brand, if you're going to use it as a logo and the brand versus like, I guess, startup creative doesn't, isn't printed on as many things. Um, but was, did you guys have advice around that stuff? Were you figuring out as, as you went? Did you... Wait expensive like what was the process learning process we didn't know what we were in for really we just kind of done it <laughs> um but yeah yeah no we didn't i mean we we've, we've just been learning and i mean lawyers are expensive so we obviously tried to not use as as many of those really expensive sort of services as possible um we've learned now that 
you know, they can save you a lot of money in the future. Um, but luckily for us, we haven't really had any issues there. Yeah, awesome. And did you um, did you guys have capital to start with? Like did you put your own money into it or did you get, get loans or how did it kind of get off the ground? Um, so, Jono, did you want to answer that? I feel like I've been talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, that's kind of, you know, one of the biggest challenges for anyone starting a company is how, how the hell do you – how do you how do you fund it? How do you buy that initial stock? Then how do you market it? How do you do anything? So um, for us, we we're pretty young. We like like we said, we had that screen printing company. Deco was a lot more involved than me. I kind of jumped on it, kind of more towards I guess midway through it. Um, but um, yeah, funding wise, it was you know for us, we're lucky that we've got really supportive dads and our dads were able to kind of lend us i think it was well i got lent twenty thousand dollars from my dad and deco's dad craig he's probably been a lot more involved in the company over the years um and probably lent him kind of similar and with that money we were kind of able to to buy some blank t-shirts screen print to them and eventually hustle them off to turn it into a little bit more capital but um deco yeah our funding was like, yeah, super difficult. I think, yeah, we put in about, um, I think that first like road trip we done, we threw about 15 grand into a bank account each, which was just our yeah. own sort of saved money. And then it wasn't until we got sort of our first orders and we had to pay for all the inventory up front. And that was when we got, yeah, around twenty or $30,000 loans, both from our parents, um, which I mean, it's, no, it's nothing like really. And that sort of got us through that initial stage. We were buying T-shirts from Gildan, screen printing them ourselves. Um, and then we managed to pay that money back to our parents. And then we went into, then we got a couple of really big orders and started manufacturing in China. And we went sort of, holy fuck, how do we get this money together? It was, a, it, you know, it's not much money now, but back then it was a huge amount. It was like 120 grand or something like that. And and both of our parents put their house as security. Wow. Um, yeah. And then we just borrowed it from the bank. Um, and then I think we ended up talking our parents into um, putting about 100 grand each on the line against their house. Um, and I remember having the conversation with my dad been like don't you fuck this up you know <laughs> um and yeah so we we managed to kind of roll through that pay it back and you know our business was ran so tight with cash for years um because the the problem is that you've got to pay for it we had to pay for our inventory up front import it from china that would take you know a month then it would get here and then we would ship that out to all our accounts and then they would pay about 60 days later. So we'd have to fund all this production for like 90 days each time. Um, and then as the orders are getting bigger, you'd need more money each time and, um, you know, you just kind of call it, yeah, you just got to beg and borrow from suppliers and make up stories and <laughs> different mm-hmm. things and just hustle through it. Yeah, and because actually... It, it, it got to a level where, you know, once it hit that sort of $100,000 each security mark from our parents, you know, they're like, hey, we can't do anything more than that. It's getting too big 
for us now. Um, so that's when it was really talking people into doing things for mm. us, I guess. That's an amazing story. What was that pressure like? Like how do you sleep at night, your parents, the, uh, like really going into back for you guys? Yeah, I wasn't ever um, worried about them. I kind of knew we had the inventory on hand that if something happened, we could kind of sell it all off the cost and get them paid back because that was basically the bank would come after them if if not, um, you know. If I mean, it's it also off. like a good opportunity. It, I think people work in two ways. It's like the fear of failure and what could go wrong and motivates people to just make it work often. Yeah. Yes, of course. Well, there's not an option. <laughs> yeah, yes. that makes sense. It's but, um, also, I guess for us, we're we're pretty young, so we didn't even pay ourselves, and we're like basically just living off a thing called Nice at the time. I think both mm-hmm. of us had that. It was like a government-run uh, kind of program to help young entrepreneurs basically um, have some sort of support, and it paid about what the doll paid. Um, and cost of living back then was like, you know, I think well, one stage we're living together, I think we're paying like 60 bucks a room for a house. (laughs) And then we eventually moved into the industrial estate and lived up above, um, the screen printing operation. And so our cost of living was nothing. So basically the only real risk in that money was, you know, selling the stock. It's not like that money we lent or, or the money coming back from the sales was going towards paying us. It was going directly to pay back that loan to our dads. Mm. So if before you're the, um, before nowadays, the celebrities moved into Byron. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I mean, looking back on that, it's such a big advantage starting it so young, not having any sort of commitments um, to anything. And, and we were just living upstairs at the business, so there was no – the. Screen printing business was paying our rent. We were getting $500 a fortnight from um, Centrelink. And, yeah, I don't know. That 200 bucks was enough, I guess, a week. Back then it was yeah. it was a different world. Like it was 16 years. It was 2006 that we lived yeah. in that screen printing. Um, you know, Byron Bay was such a tiny little town. It was, um, yeah. yeah, it was mellow. It was, it was, it was, it was easy. Like lots of. 22-year-olds living on nothing now still, and it's easy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a good lifestyle there. But I think it's also a good example of like when you've got a dream and you want it bad enough and, you know, there's your parents' livelihoods online, then you you put your head down and you make it happen. Yeah, that's it. And so I think we got – it took us about three or four years and then we had that loan released from like the security of their houses released – uh, and the business was making enough sort of where you can reinvest enough money out of the business that the bank was starting to lend us money. Um, and then we slowly just sort of snowballed it from there and we started paying ourselves a wage and paying other people and just, you know, every year we're just paying ourselves a little bit more. We're still like that now. We're still, we're not the highest paid people in our business. Um, there's people paid more than us and, we, every year we just tack a little bit more onto our wage and, um, yeah, no, it's great. Mm. It's been a, a good journey but very Amazing. tough financially. <laughs> yeah, um, I know you, you hear it a lot in the product-based businesses. It's that, And that's, you know, the, I think the difference between 
businesses that you know can kind of tip into a success or or flop and kind of fold away because the biggest I mean I also hear it a lot it's like the you've got to have the guts to manage that level of cash flow and risk as well yeah and I think it's about trying to meet everyone's expectations as well so what we sort of the people that we couldn't pay on time for a long time was all local suppliers like just domestic suppliers because inventory they wouldn't release inventory from offshore until we paid for it so whether it was local printers or um you know point of sale marketing things or magazines or whatever that be you know we were paying all those guys in like 90 days back then and they were going crazy at us so you know we might owe someone five grand and we're sending them five hundred dollars a week you know 10 weeks to draw it out past that and you know and you're calling everyone just managing this big thing this you know but yeah we got there and, and now we pay all our bills up front and we have none of that pressure and we can focus on the creative side of the business and yeah, the thing the, the the part of the business that we really like to do that that headache's been out of our business now for about probably about five or six years so i would say six years it, it, it took about 10 years really to get a super strong cash flow to be able to pay everyone. You know, we, we can pay for things before we get them and it means yeah, wow. that we have better negotiating power and everything. It's a really, really good position to be in. Yeah, that's awesome. Huge congrats. So how did you um how did you move your stock like when that when you you know started growing from that home homegrown screen printing to um stock from China, like what was what were you doing to move it through? Um, to sell it? Do you mean like how yeah. were you selling it? Were you getting it, stockers or you doing your own marketing? Yeah, it, it was all sold to wholesale. Um, so we had a team of sort of five reps that were subcontractors, and we would make samples and we give them the samples. They go out, they show that the wholesale base, all those stores out there, and collect orders. And then we would make the inventory in China for those orders. And, you know, that would just happen season after season and we would just build it and build it and build it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. it and then, about, <clears throat> yeah, you do. Um, well, yeah, and then sort of direct-to-consumer came into our business and it uh, solid direct-to-consumer started in our business around five years ago, do you think, Jono? I thought it was 2000, the- 2009. We actually, based on lifestyle, we decided to open up a store in Bali. Um, so we were manufacturing in Indonesia, mainly Bali. And basically what we are thinking behind it was, you know, we're, we're going over there, we're checking on our factories, we're producing product here. Why not open up a store here? It ties in with our lifestyle. We want to kind of be going there for surf trips and chilling out and stuff like that. <clears throat> so our first direct-to-consumer store was, I think, 2009 um, in Kuda <laughs> before it was really gross. <laughs> <laughs> I think that whole kind of part of Bali from like Kuda to Seminyak to Changu and stuff, it just keeps kind of, you know, the further down the coast it's now it, – it gets nicer and cooler and more like, um, I guess, high end. So back then it was actually cooler to be around the Poppies 2 area in, in Kuda 
So that was actually the first store and first kind of taste of direct-to-consumer. We also then had a very basic flash website, which we were selling online, but online and e-commerce didn't really come into the picture to around like 2011. Um, it was obviously people buying stuff online, but just nowhere near as widely as now. So I think, um, you know, that first store in Bali and then able to open up our first store in Byron really kind of got us thinking about direct-to-consumer and, and kind of moving on to different sales channels. Yeah, awesome. And did you have contacts in like the, in um, like, uh, what do you call them, Con- um, contractors, those guys? Was, uh, was that like from your, your industry experience and contacts and things like that or was uh, that to kind of uh, compete with a new brand? Sales reps, you mean, that we had? Uh, yeah, those guys. <laughs> yeah, 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 those guys. So they, um, yeah, I mean, that was a, a mission as well because to get in, to get good sales guys, you've got to have a good brand that sells easy that, you know, it's like if a sales rep gets a brand that sells really good, they're going to make a lot of money. So, you know, really trying to get the right guys to sell your brand for you was hard. Um, but we kind of nailed that pretty good and that, really um, made our brand accelerate by getting a good sales team on and getting them to tell the story and um, push it, you know. So, yeah, yeah. no, that was What's your tip for getting a good sales rep? Was it contacts or referrals or selling them a good story, buying them a beer? (laughs) I I think is like selling them the dream (laughs) probably, trying to get them on board to, yeah, just, just really need to pick, um, make sure there's a ton of enthusiasm there and they're really going to believe in what you're doing because you might have an option between someone that's a bit more younger and a bit more junior that's like really, really hungry. Maybe they don't have as many contacts. Um, And then the other option is, you know, slightly older, lots of contacts, more experienced. Um, can open a whole lot of doorways really, really easy because they've got the keys to all those relationships. Um, so, but don't want to have someone like that that's not enthusiastic, need somewhere kind of in the middle, um, someone that knows how to get the job done that's really, really hungry. Yeah, that would be my advice. Also, yeah. I think too is, um, you know, when you're starting out, my advice would be like you kind of want to do everything because – once you kind of have an idea of how everything works from sales to design to accounting to warehousing, everything, you've just got a way better, you're just in a way better position to kind of know when you get employees, what they're meant to be doing, if they're doing a good job. So Deco was kind of jumping on the road and, and selling our first kind of eight or so collections. Um, I jumped on the road a, a little bit, not as much as him. Um, and I think that really kind of helped, I guess, Deco as well, being able to kind of know who's doing a good job as far as sales goes and how they should probably approach a store, how they should present a range, um, what, you know, what, what are those key kind of points they should be making um, and how, I guess, they should be representing themselves so that it kind of resonates really well for us and, and our brand. Mm. And did you guys know this stuff from the beginning or is it something that you figured out along the way? Like, oh, We know nothing. <laughs> we, 
yeah, we just figured it out and spoke to lots of just whoever we could find that could help, you know, that had any sort of experience. And we had friends in the industry and um, so we'd sort of call them and talk to them and us, you know, just navigate our way through it all and work it out. Yeah, I guess the difference for us, we, you know, neither Deco or I, we've really worked for other companies in the industry. Um, So everything's trial and error and talking to people and, yeah, just trying to work it out. So, I mean. I actually love that as a story because I think a lot of people think they, you know, you've got to have all your ducks in a row and understand it all and do courses and hire people from the early stages. But I think you nailed it, Jono, with like understanding all the different angles because I I definitely learned that, like the number of people who have website issues and don't know how to fix it and I've built all my websites and it means that when it goes down in the middle of the day or on a Sunday and you can you can genuinely figure it out and <laughs> you, you understand it all more and you're not dependent or like in the dark about anything. Yeah, I think you just... Even even if, even if it's just a little bit of an understanding and a, you know a little bit of knowledge, so that you can kind of know where to look for more or talk to different people and kind of be able to talk the talk. It's so important to really have a well-rounded level of knowledge if you're for whatever company you're running, especially yeah, like you said there, for for websites and development and stuff because. Um, you know, it's such a complex thing, but, you know, if you do have a bit of an understanding, you can kind of know where to start and where to look and try and solve it yourself to some extent. Yeah. Awesome. Good advice. So you guys also have the conscious sustainability side where you're using a lot of hemp product in your range. Has it always been that from the beginning or is that something you move towards and how hard was that? in the business, in the fashion world, to be more of a conscious creator? Um, I'll I'll give that a bit of a start. Um, So, yeah, um, I guess for us, the first touch point for sustainability came from hemp. And hemp for us obviously came from a love of cannabis culture and um, just basically that whole counterculture. Um, so we started, I remember we were doing these 50 limited teas um, and basically our whole concept for, for that was we wanted to do real life, not too political, but different um, subjects which were kind of real life things that are happening um, at the time um, or, or things that we were really kind of interested in. And a lot of the subjects kind of came around different types of weed culture, whether it be like a Biggie Smalls T-shirt or um, I remember when Nate Dog died, he, there was a shirt kind of um, giving him respects and stuff like that. And basically that stuff kind of really resonated well with our target market and our consumer and, um, you know, something that we really kind of enjoyed doing. And so we then kind of started to explore um, hemp and kind of, trying to you know we we didn't even realize that you could make proper clothes out of it i remember you know the only examples of clothing out of hemp were go down to the byron bay market <laughs> and, and pants. 
Yeah. <laughs> and see some kind of weird kind of rusted looking kind of hat or something. Um, so we kind of just dove in the deep end. We're like, how do we make something cool out of hemp? And um, at the time we were really kind of pushing board shorts. Um, so we we kind of were going, you know what, this is probably the hardest clothing item you could probably make out of hemp. So let's just do that. <laughs> um, so, so we kind of made that pair of board shorts and then, you know, it came to the, time where we're like all right we've got to market this and rather than kind of going hey you know you like smoking weed buy these let's kind of go deeper and and have a look into you know what what is hemp and what 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 what's about it um and started googling and looking into it and and you know basically there was just a lot of research out there that it was a, a great environmental plant there was heaps of different aspects um, from how the plant can rejuvenate soil, how it can um, <clears throat> use a lot less water, and most importantly, not use pesticides. It can be kind of grown without pesticides most of the time, um, where you can pair that to conventional cotton, and it is, you know, one of the most kind of uh, pesticide driven crops you can kind of get it contributes a huge amount of pesticides um to to basically um to grow it so there was a lot of different kind of bits and pieces that were popping up and and we just started just diving in deep and and putting it out there and um we Basically, that first pair of board shorts we put up, it sold terribly. No one even really liked it. <laughs> but we were like, fuck it, let's just, you know, make some more stuff because we think it's going gonna, it's gonna to resonate, it's going to work. So we, we kept kind of going and going. And um, I think it took a while for people to really even like it. What do, what do you reckon, Decker? Where, where was your vision behind that? Um, that, sorry, I'm just moving. Because there's so loud people everywhere. Um, so, so yeah, that pretty much just kicked off, um, yeah, our whole journey with um, being conscious of the rag trade industry and how toxic it is. And, and yeah, it pretty much just we went down the rabbit hole from then onwards, I guess. Um, and we started to work with factories and really started focusing on sustainable fibres um, we developed a recycled poly hemp board short, which, um, you know, is a pretty good board short now. It's selling really well. It's it, a lot of our customers would know it really well. Um, yeah, it's, it's doing really well. And, and then in the last sort of three years, um, we've gone crazy with certifications, um, where it got certified, um, company. Um, that's sort of governed by a, a global body called Textile Exchange. Um, What's that stand our, for? Um, Textile Exchange. Is it? Do you say got? Gots, Gots certification, which is a is a global standard. Global yeah, organic no. textiles. Glo- global organic textiles. So basically, there's a whole lot of um, yeah certifications that fit underneath that, and the whole supply chain needs to have like TCs, which stands for trade certificate. So every source, 
every every like starts with the farmer and it goes all the way through through the whole supply chain all the way to the consumer and every time that product moves from one to another um yeah it it, it basically has to have that trade certificate amazing um, so so that's where that's where we're up to now we I'll give you an idea of um, an issue that I've been dealing with. We resolved it last Friday, but um, we, you know, placed a whole lot of purchase orders. Um, and Control Union, they are like one of the companies that sort of works with Textile Exchange. And so they um, changed the requirements on recycled cotton because we're doing a lot of recycled cotton now. And basically they... Um, decided that the yarn length has to be um, 28, oh, I don't know the exact length, to be honest. Um, maybe it's 32 millimetres long um, or else they're, they're deeming it not the quality up to standard. Um, mm. So we've got, you know, a crazy amount of product on order. We're about to go to order and then all of a sudden. So that, that requirement changed on the 31st of April, uh, mm. 30th of April. And we weren't made aware of it um, until about the 1st or 2nd of May or something like that. Um, so then we're sort of in this thing and so we've had to change all our recycled cotton now to 50% recycled cotton, 50% organic cotton. Uh, it's increased the, the build price by about 10 or 20%. So we had an option to either take the recycled cotton without the trade certificate or increase the price of the product, spend a whole lot more money and hold that integrity, supply chain integrity. Um, yeah, amazing. So, how hard so, is that as a choice for you guys? And like, you know, obviously knowing that, that part of that's going to go on to your consumer, but is it like, is it your, is your consumer's like expectation of you guys now or is that, you know, your ethical and like own integrity around it? Um. It's really important to us. Like we basically we've made a pact um, and we have to stick to it, <laughs> yeah. you know. We, you know, we, we market it, we talk about it. It's what we're about internally. Um, so, yeah, that's just. Yeah, I love it. It's just like those strong brand values where you're just like, all right, this is what we're going to stand for. And I think that's what makes a brand give it like a you know the cult loyal following is that people are like when I come to this brand I know what I'm getting and they're not gonna you know they're not gonna sway from that or fuck me over or or, or pivot too quickly like it's just solid and reliable yeah it's, yes it's crazy how easy it would be to have a non-sustainable brand <laughs> yeah get any old fiber any old fabric you can get it for dirt cheap you can use a cheap factory in China. You can, mm. you know, make all this marginal as profit and you just feel like a dickhead. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been amazing to watch um, the consumer behaviour change and, you know, people definitely sussing out the people behind the brand but also what's, you know, what's it made of and where it's made and expecting that. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to see how much, like, crap, cheap, fashion is no longer uh, really an okay thing it's 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 nuts like the only way that we've been able to do this and make this change is because of our direct to consumer business because mm. the price of like got certified product or hemp or 
organic cotton, even even these products that aren't certified, like even using hemp that's not certified, um, well, I shouldn't get into that because hemp's actually <laughs> got, yeah, hemp's really new. It's got a, to- a whole lot of new certification. It's about to start going through. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, even like so what happens is it increased the price of the garments by a lot. Um, so basically, say we're reta- retailing a, um, a conventional cotton tea for $60, that, that same tea has got to be like, you know, anywhere from 75 to 80 bucks, $80. Mm-hmm. So the big issue that we had dealing with major retailers in Australia, they're just not prepared to put that sort of price point in their shops because they just weren't ready or didn't realise that consumers are happy to pay more money for it. So the only way we could really deploy because our ranges as of the start of this year are 100% certified fibres, every garment that we create. So basically we've had a big price increase and we've lost a whole lot of revenue out of wholesale. Um, But the only way we could do it is because our direct-to-consumer business, our e-com and all our stores are in such a vertical growth point that basically that revenue and margin was was swapped out. So for our own yeah. own direct-to-consumer sales. So we're really, really lucky that we're in that spot. Um, and I think that's why, um, yeah, I don't know, I, we've, we've been able to do it. And, and yeah. you know, other businesses are probably looking at us going, I don't know how they've done that. I don't know how they pulled it <laughs> off, but... I mean, I think that's something I've noticed over the years with businesses is, you know, a the founders behind the brand have such strong values and they ooze that through everything they do because it is really easy. You know, we're seeing a lot of the greenwashing of people being like, oh, I don't, I plant a tree or whatever. And it, it and it's not totally kind of like fully embedded and embodied in the whole of the brand. It's just this kind of like side thing. And when you when a brand actually like lives and breathes that, then I think people notice it and then they're loyal to you guys. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think it's like like last week it would have been really easy because we had that, you know, that recycled cotton. We were using that six months ago, that exact cotton that's in our products right now and it was certified. But mm. the, you know, Textile Exchange decided to change that certification and the requirements around it. And so from now on, we can't purchase that fabric anymore. You know, it would have been really easy to just go, you know what, fuck it. It's too late. We only just found out a few days ago. We've got an excuse. But instead we went, nah, we're going to wear it. We're going to do it. And we've got 60 days to sort out a solution before we place our next orders to work out if we can find a different fabric well, a um, recycled cotton that has a long, long enough strand in it that we can actually, you know, yeah, wow. have it certified. Amazing. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a lot in it. <laughs> but, and um, how, tell us a little bit about how, like, obviously when you started out, it was pretty fresh, the whole <laughs> hemp and recycled cotton and all of that, but how hard was it to find suppliers and to build those relationships and and really understand the depths of the process? I know a lot of people start out and want to start an ethical label and, and don't really know where to start and it, it can be so overwhelming and where do you, you know, how do you find the truth in it as well? Well, we it took us um, 
you know, we've been using organic fibres and and what you'd call sustainable fibres for five or six years. Um, and it was only really up until, you know, sort of three years ago that we realised that we needed to have, um, uh, you know, what do you call it? Like we need to have evidence behind our products that they are and that's why we got into certifications. And I'm learning every day. Like I learned a lot last week um, even just dealing with that issue. So there's a lot to learn but I think it's just about getting into it, having a go, talking to as many people as you can and jumping through the hoops, just like running any business and getting it done (laughs) pretty much. And with, when you say ethical as well, it's like um, there's, there's so many different angles from the social side as well. Um, and, you know, and the word sustainability gets thrown around so just so much these days. Um, I like to kind of consider sustainability as like an innovation point. So it's like for us, we started the brand, we're printing on like Gildan Tees and we're, I think we're getting like um, those 50, the, what are those like flat brim hats? I kind of remember now. And and then you kind of evolve and you start making your own clothes through factories in China. And then you start to work out that, you know, that factory uh, might not be as ethical and, and um, social, like have the social kind of compassion that we kind of need and, and you're not making it on the right fibres that are sustainable. And so you kind of go through this path of, of improving and innovating. And so if you're kind of starting out um, and you think you're going to be this 100% ethical, sustainable brand and, you, you know, you're going to save the world, it's kind of, you're kind of, you, you're going to, it's good, like it's a great way to think, but you've got to always think that there's better ways to do things and, that this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg where we're at now. And, and for us, the exciting part for me anyway, is that we're at this forefront of hemp and hemp is like, it's people have just put it to the side because of the stigma behind it. And when you really look into that fiber and you have a look at, you know, the potential of it and the dark ages it's sitting in right now, like, like for us, we want to start, the next stage of, of evolution is for us to be able to grow our own hemp and then also um, uh, cultivate it and process it and potentially make our own clothes here in Australia and mm. keep moving forward so that you're just really closing the loop so that every single action, every part of it, you know what's going on. It's like... Um, a big example for us is we've been really trying to give back a lot more over the last few years and we struggle to find the right organisations that you can give money to because, like, mm. where does it go? What are they doing with it? Um, so I think, like, there's a lot of good ones that you can give money to, but if you kind of, like, for us, me and Decker, we, we, we truly just kind of, we're pretty psyched on it. We, we kind of want to just see that evolution. And, and for me, I'm really keen on the whole innovation side and, and innovation is working in harmony with environment and um, always looking at how you can improve process. So starting ethically is a great kind of view. Um, 
but like you've got to always realize that yeah that's an evolution <laughs> it's always yeah. there's always a better way to do things yeah well also like advice. just yeah, just when you think you've nailed it you probably haven't either yeah. like that's kind of i guess that's what we've <laughs> keep learning with um like you know i don't know probably i don't know how long we've been using cornstarch bags but when we first started using cornstarch bags, they're 100% cornstarch, 100% biodegradable. And that would have been eight years ago, I reckon. I'm just guessing. Um, and I remember designing what was on the cornstarch bag and we put a recycled logo on there with it, you know. And I just rem- rem- knew that we were doing the right thing, but we just didn't really know that much about it. It was a while ago, you know. Yeah. And, like, you can't recycle cornstarch. You know, one of the biggest problems with cornstarch is lots of people put it in recycling bins and it goes to recycling centres and the recycling centres don't know what to do with it because they don't have a composting part of their business there. Yeah. They're like, what the fuck are we going to do with all this cornstarch? They're going to pack it up, put it in a truck and ship it off where it can break down. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big issue that was happening in California a few years ago. Um, but, I mean, you know, we, we worked that out pretty quick, but that's just an example of, of, you know, you think, oh, great, we got the cornstarch done now, boom, 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 like get that in place, yeah, yeah. you know. I think it's, yeah, it, I love that and I love how honest and real you guys are about the ups and downs because I think that's the reality of it, right? And I do a lot of business coaching and it, it's pretty easy to, like it, a lot of people hit roadblocks early on and, you know, setbacks and I think, you know, the, the biggest success key is that this shit's going to happen. You've got to figure it out. And it's not rocket science and it's not that people who have the success that you guys have had have uh, any better or smarter or more or luckier. It's just it sounds to me as if you're just determined and you've got this vision and you're just going to keep figuring it out. Yeah, that's it. Trial and error, trial and error, keep figuring it out. It just, I love it. But it keeps you kind of thinking, you know, it's like, you know, what do you do? You get to the end result. You made heaps of cool clothes. Keep making more cool clothes. You know, <laughs> the, the fun part is, is like evolving and doing things better. And then you feel really good about doing good stuff. And, um, you know, you, I, <laughs> I mean, it just so, you got a conscious or not. <laughs> really. Yeah. And, and to make the experience really interesting or more interesting, we, um, the company bought a hundred acres just near Pottsville. Yeah. Um, Pottsville is just like, in, you know, 20 minutes out of Byron. So um, we bought a hundred acres there and we're growing. Um, our first crop goes in in October um, as long as everything goes to plan. Like the DDP, they, they come out and inspect where we're going to grow. I think that's next week. It's next Friday. Um, so they come out, we'll show where we're going to grow and then we'll put our first hemp crop in. Um, and then, yeah. And then, so we should be harvesting that in, um, probably January next year. And then, um, I think this first harvest we'll, we'll probably send to our main hemp factory, um, which is in China. So it it feels like a shame to send it off to China, but, um, they're, they know how to work with it. They're much more experienced than we are. So they can test the quality and the strength and all that kind of stuff and, and make sure it. It's where it needs to be, and then if if we get the okay there, then we'll talk some farmers into growing growing it for us, um, mm. and then we can start talking into some local manufacturers, probably down in Melbourne or Sydney, and 
and see if we can sort of start to kick kickstart some locally grown and manufactured um, hemp. And that's just kind of closing the loop more and more. Yeah, I love um, it. And I think that's it's awesome because it's like that's a huge risk to take on, right? It's a whole new skill set and like that's yeah. it's a real deep commitment to what you're doing. So Yeah, it's just interesting. It, it keeps things fun and, you know. So Classic entrepreneur it. move. It's like, oh, we've kicked so many goals. We don't have money problems. Let's buy 100 acres. <laughs> yeah, 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 kind of a little bit. Um, but also like I'm still – like very entrenched in product and always working with product and like we blend so many things like we have hemp cord hemp silk hemp like so we're blending with silk and hemp and you know different sorts of all sorts of things um there's so there's so many good fibers out there so many good sustainable fibers um and then if you you blend even even blending poly with with hemp is cool you know it's it's um and and then we can make so many different cool products out of it. So yeah, yeah it just it just kind of it's just kind of opened up a whole lot of more interest and better, cooler, new, unique product. And yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, great. I think it's no, it's awesome. It's so good to hear that people are leading the way like this. And I think that especially in the fashion world, it's like I think every business owner should always be looking at how they can do better, but also how do you keep innovating and how do you keep excited and you know how do you keep growing and evolving so that you don't get stale and left behind. I think it's good for business and for the planet as well. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much insight. Before we finish it up, I might ask you both to have a bit of a think about what would your number one tip be for someone looking to to start their own business, to jump in and, you know, create their dreams? What would what would you give them as a piece of advice? Maybe we'll start with you, Jono. Um, yeah, I guess, um, for me, you know, there's, there's a lot of different pieces of advice you could give, but I mean, my, my, from my experience, the the best bit of advice that I would have liked to have got is to just, uh, you know, really think about the whole, the whole, like everything as a whole, like, yeah, you put together a business plan, but kind of think kind of even further than that and really think about like, your lifestyle, what you really enjoy and how you're going to kind of be able to grow with that company because there's no point kind of trying to kick off something and go, okay, well, I'm just going to do it for a couple of years and, um, you know, probably fail or, or maybe sell it or something like that. I think you kind of want to have that um, vision that you're going to have it for life and it's something that you're going to kind of live and breathe and you want to kind of grow when it grows. And um, so, if you can kind of think about something that you're going to kind of always enjoy doing, then you're always going to kind of evolve with it. You're always going to innovate with it and you're going to always kind of enjoy your life and um, love what you're doing. And when you kind of love what you're doing and um, in, enjoy what you're doing, then, you know, the thing that you're doing is going to probably be successful. So, yeah. Um, awesome. I think great, that's great really, advice. Thanks, really good advice. That's like kind of nailed it. The only thing I could say is don't get too caught up in the planning process. Don't get too caught up in trying to have this perfect kind of thing mapped out just because you'll never start it (laughs) because it'll never be perfect. So it's, you know, so there's just some sort of balance in between of, of trying to think 
how it starts, how it finishes, what your ideal situation is. But just at the same time, just get into it and get going with it. Because, um, you know, I've watched, I've watched a lot of people plan and sort of spend so much time, six months, maybe even 12 months trying to work out what their brand looks like and how, you know, how, how it sits end to end. But, you know, don't let it, don't let that just consume you. You just got to get moving with it at the same time. So. Yeah. Legend. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. So many great tips and really appreciate you sharing the story so honestly. And yeah, good luck for the future. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with your farm and yeah, keep kicking goals. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. It was really good. Had a great Legend. time and talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for tuning into the Startup Creative Podcast. If you get a chance, head to iTunes and leave a rating and review. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you get notified every time there's a new podcast up. See you next week.